And welcome to a new edition of Racing Through Time podcast, special coverage of Daytona, special series covering Daytona. Last week, we covered the 1983 Daytona 500 and Speed Weeks. Andy, this week, we are covering the 1988 version of Speed Weeks, and there was quite a bit of things happening in 1988. There was more going on here than I remembered, you know. There's a lot of crashes that stick in your head, and this race had one, and I honestly forgot it was in this race. This one is the iconic Richard Petty flip race, and there's just a lot of storylines regarding and surrounding this race. So we're going to do what we did last week. Um, Last week, when we recorded, we had the entire Bush Clash and um, the 125s. We do have the Bush Clash this week. The 125s, the only version that we could find on YouTube was like a 20, 25-minute highlight clip, and that might have been all they made. <clears throat> People forget back then, the Bush, uh, the 125 show was usually shown on Saturday before the Bush race, and it was condensed. So for them to have that big show that we had, um, or the long broadcast in 1983, was actually a little strange. Yeah, and that's something I noticed this week, too, is, you know, the qualifying races, there wasn't much of a big clip of them. And on the raw feed, you get to see that a lot of times when they were having pit stops, they took that as a commercial break. You'd never see that. Now, that's where the action is. But, you know, then it was just like, okay, they're not racing. Let's cut the commercial. So this week's a little bit different, as we don't have nearly as much to talk about in the uh Bush or the uh, 125s. So we'll go ahead and we'll start though with the Bush Clash and some things going on around it. Uh, Chris Economaki welcomes us to Daytona. The opening shot of Daytona Speed Weeks in 1988 is some females clad in string bikinis walking on the beach, which is perfectly fine. And now nobody would even think twice about it, but it's funny because it's 1988, and in that same clip, there is an old woman that's walking by him the other way that literally does a double take on the camera like, what are you wearing? Hey, all I can say is racial harmony was achieved because one was a white woman, one was a black woman, and they both looked mighty fine. The talent was there. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, I just, I want to know what the old woman now, if she was, if you plucked her out of 1988, and you dropped her into 2023, and you just turned her loose on a, a Lizzo uh, experience, <laughs> what would happen with that, with that old lady, Andy? I believe the phrase is, bless your heart, which for those who are not of the Southern persuasion means, what the hell? <laughs> she may not make it to the what the hell. She may just croak, and that would be it. It, it, they'd be enough pressure all there for her, that's for sure. Ooh. The pit walk, um, you know, people think they invented that in Formula One or Michael Waltrip invented it later in NASCAR. This this was going on way back. It's been going on for decades. Chris Economatic, he's doing the pit walk here, and uh, it was pretty cool. He would stop at every driver and talk to him for a couple of seconds. He blew a couple of them off, only gave him like a couple of words to say. Then he told Jeff Bodine that he was talking too long, <laughs> so uh, he, he didn't care what. Economaki, I guess, had, had been in 
racing so long and his give a shit was just gone at this point. I think he enjoyed racing, but he really didn't care who he made mad or what he said. No, he wanted to go talk to who he wanted to talk to. And as we'll find out later on, he was ready to get done. (laughs) Yes, we will find that out later. Um, We also see the debut of Dale Earnhardt in the Cup Series driving the good wrench black and number three, the iconic number three, the one that most people know. It was actually debuted in the Bush series or the sportsman series years before that as the number eight that he ran in the Bush series most of the time. And so he had ran the black Goodyear car quite a bit. And Andy, I know that we may have talked about this in 86 or 87, I don't remember. I know that we've talked about this before at some point for some reason, but um, Goodrich for the cup car actually was going to go with the blue, like the darker blue Goodrich with the white, and they had painted half of a car Goodrich blue, half of it black, and somehow, some way that day, a couple of people was able to change Goodyear Good good wrench's mind and get the black instead of the blue. Could you imagine the man in blue? No, it, no, it looks too much like an AC Delco part plug commercial if they've done that. Started calling him Little Boy Blue instead of the man in black. The whole yeah, trajectory of the whole trajectory of NASCAR would have been changed. Well, it, it, yeah, it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have been the Intimidator in black. The man in black no, it would have been. Little boy blue, come blow your horn. Uh, speaking of blowing, um, we cover Tim Richmond, and oh God, this is the story, maybe, or one of the big stories of 88 Speed Weeks. He was not eligible due to a drug test failure. And this was a weird week because there, this is the Bush Class Show, and there's like 30 things that happens between the Clash and the 500. But let's play the clip of Richmond talking to Ken Squire after the failed drug test. It came back. He said it was positive for, for two substances. And they had no choice but to, to suspend me. I mean, I would bet you any amount of money that they would give anything had they not taken this test. Because now they can't let me on the track until, you know, if, if I was to go out on the track, hurt someone or whatever and it'd be found out that they were aware of this test prior to going in, then, you know, they would... So I understand their position here. I've just maintained, uh, there's, you've made a mistake, I've made mistakes in my life, meaning that there's been a mistake made on this drug test, somehow or another. Uh, I am not guilty of it. Tim, have you used drugs or uh, 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 prohibited uh, uh, substances in 1988? No, I have not. At any time while you were a Winston Cup driver? No, I have not. Tim Richmond submitted to a second test last night. No conclusion yet. He says he will be vindicated. For more on the story and a driver's overview, let's go to Pit Road. Mike Joy is standing by. Thank you, Ken. I'm with Daryl Walter, former national driving champion. Okay, we won't actually play the uh, the rest of the clip with Mike Joy and Daryl Walter. <clears throat> right there, Tim Richmond says know that he'll be vindicated that he didn't fail a drug test. Andy, we 
we'll come back or circle back around to it. We'll we'll talk about it again. But he tested positive for Sudafed, elevated levels of Sudafed and aspirin. That's what NASCAR kicked him for. They were so afraid of him because the drivers was throwing such a fit in 1987 over how he was acting. And we now know the reason he was acting this way was he was dying of AIDS. He was doing everything he could to stay on the track. And I'm sure some weeks he probably was down, but I don't ever think that he was like on hardcore drugs. I think he was on prescribed medication to try to stay functional. This is just really sad. Well, I mean, just think about the way normal people feel when they take a Benadryl or, you know, anything like that. It's going to have a side effect. And the man was, uh, the best I remember, 87, he was fighting pneumonia, like, for months on it. And, like I say, probably taking anything he could that would get him back out on the track because that's the way a race car driver is. Yeah, and this isn't a show about us being doctors because Lord knows neither one of us are. Um, and I'm not going to try to give you like a lesson in HIV or AIDS, but basically it, it appears that he had likely had HIV for several years going into 86, 87. And then I'm, I'm guessing with the way things happened in 87, because he learned, I, we, we learned through the 86 shows that I think it's right after the banquet or right around the time of the banquet after the 86 season that he finds out that he has AIDS. Um, and there's a difference between HIV and AIDS. HIV is the virus that causes AIDS, but once you have full-blown AIDS, your immune system is compromised to the point where anything can really get you down. So when he, in 1987, was saying to people, that he was hospitalized with pneumonia for weeks at a time and he couldn't get over it. I'm sure everybody else thought that he was just full of crap, but honestly, that was the truth because AIDS compromises your immune system. So anytime you catch anything else, it makes it a hundred times worse. So Tim Richmond in 87 was battling pneumonia the whole year, but the pneumonia was, a hundred times worse than it should have been because he had AIDS. Yeah, and the the bad, the, I don't know, the sad part, bad part, however you want to say it, if he would have had HIV even 10 years later, the drugs and stuff that they had then to fight it, he could still be around with it. I mean, look at Magic Johnson. I mean, you know, yeah, he found out. Five, five years died. later, five years later, yeah. he would have. He would have been just, he would have, he would have probably, I mean, it does usually cut your life short eventually, but um, he would have still even been able to compete. Magic Johnson actually made it socially acceptable to have HIV, and it wasn't just the disease that was looked on at a certain part of society, and only gay people had it, or only, there was so much stigma around getting AIDS that Richmond was in a corner. He couldn't tell anybody that he had it because he felt that that would ruin his career. And honestly, if he would have told NASCAR in 1987, I'm being treated for AIDS, 
with as little as they knew then about the disease and how it spreads and everything, I don't think they'd let him race anyway. No, they, there is no way in hell, and that to me, that's why he would. Well, later on, we'll talk about him fighting the medical records, but that had to be the reason because you know as well as I do at that time frame in Ford of NASCAR, it being in the South, nothing against our people, but. That's what it was connected to. It was, at, you know, at that time it was connected to gay people, gay men, and that's how you got it. And that in case with him, but he couldn't have fought that stigma. No, no, I mean, it, it, because he was already seen as the Hollywood playboy that was different than everybody else, and this would have just been like, oh, well, yep, we always knew. But yeah, we and, and whether to... and whether honestly whether he was or not really makes no difference. I don't. It's not any of my business who you go to bed with. I don't care. So that don't matter to me at all. It, but in 1980, we got to remember this was 87. It, just the overall feeling in the world was you 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 was outcast if you were certain types of people, and that's just the way it was. And yeah, that's that's. Sometimes I think we forget to view things in the lens of the time they happened. And yeah, that's so. the way, in the time it happened, that was, I hate to put it this way, but that was the death sentence of his career if it came out. Yeah, so it's just a really, really crappy situation. That's not the only thing that's going on at Daytona in 1988. Um, restrictor plates for the first time ever because of the Bobby Allison uh, fence teardown at Talladega in 1987, where honestly, if you've ever seen that video, and I'm sure everybody that's listened to this has, when he goes up and he hits that fence, it's not really a violent crash. I mean, it does tear his car up pretty bad, but when you see the shot right after his car stops, Andy, there was no fence left. He could have, that car, if it would have done like what Austin Dillon's has done or what some of these other guys, Jeff Bodine, like and actually flew into the catch fence with side force, there would be no NASCAR, there would be no stock car racing in America today because he would have killed 50 or 60 people. Yeah, that that would have, if it didn't completely tear completely down, it would have hurt, it would have set it back here. There's no way in the well, I mean, they talk about it later on that insurance company cover the tracks and the sponsors and all that. That's gone away. And so you who knows what would happen to it. It wouldn't be nothing like it is today. No, so they've got the restrictor plates to slow the cars down. Everybody knows this is gonna be a different Daytona than they've ever seen before and man, they don't they have no idea what, what they're getting into. Um the race, the Bush Clash. So it starts on the green flag. Earnhardt gets the jump over Bodine. Rusty Wallace goes to third. Bodine back by Earnhardt out of turn two. Lap two, the top five are trying to pull away. Sixth or seventh are side by side. Three cars, or there's three three laps in, and the cars are all in a line. The top five together, the next group a couple of seconds behind. You have Bodine, Earnhardt, Rusty Wallace. Um, Ken Schrader and uh, Bill Elliott. Four cars second back of the 11 of Labonte, 28 Allison, 
97 was Morgan Shepard and Bobby Allison. And then the others are way back. Seven laps in, the second pack catches up to the lead pack. They're starting to shuffle around a little. Jeff Bodine gets hung out to dry on the bottom. Earnhardt to the lead with Wallace behind him and Bill Elliott. Bodine goes to the end of the lead pack. They race pretty hard over the next couple of laps. The top two are trying to pull away. Ten laps in, you've got Earnhardt, Wallace, Schrader, and now you've got Davey Allison that's moved up to fourth and Shepard in fifth. Five laps to go, eight cars in the lead draft. Earnhardt, now Davey Allison, Bill Elliott, Bobby Allison, and Jeff Bodine. Three laps to go, and the 12 inside the nine trying to get by him into turn one. Two to go, and Elliott and Jeff Bodine side by side for fourth, and they lose the leaders. So it's a one-lap shootout at the Bush Clash. Earnhardt with the Allisons. Earnhardt holds them off. It's Dale Earnhardt winning the Bush Clash. Davey Allison, Bobby Allison. Then we have uh, Jeff Bodine, Bill Elliott, Rusty Wallace, Ken Schrader, Morgan Shepard, Terry Labonte, Harry Gant. Um, Andy, that this was an interesting race because I don't. Th- they were learning how to use restrictor plates. They didn't. They didn't know what they were doing at this point, honestly, and you could tell. Well, and another thing that I noticed about this, they were they were able to move around more because they were able to adjust their spoiler. So they did have some, you know, way to adjust the car to where it could pass people. But like I say, this is mostly just a feeling out process. Yeah. So I don't really want to dwell on this, this race that much. There's not a lot that can be said. We will play the um, Earnhardt interview after the win here uh, of the Bush clash. Beautiful drive, close going. Was the wind a factor? No, not at all. The car got a little loose down in that corner where the wind was blowing, but uh, she drove good all day. Jim, good wrench part. Chevrolet did a good job, and uh, you know Richard Childers and the guys did just a super job. Uh, this is a car that we were going to run in the 500, and we decided just to run it every race this week, and it's done a good job for us so far. Dale, the guy that did a super job is the guy I'm talking with here. What about the mirror? How much time did you spend looking in the mirror? Well, at the end there, it was quite a bit, uh, wondering what uh, Bobby and uh, Davey were going to do. You know, I was all right when Davey was behind me, but when I seen his dad, Bobby, get in there, I figured they'd put that Alabama shuffle on me. But uh, we were lucky enough to hold him off in a, you know, a good, clean race. Uh, Davey was uh, trying all he could do to get by me down at the end of the back straightaway, but uh, we held him off. I know the car ran well, but how hard did you push it? Why do them all day? <laughs> Never cracked it, you know, it was all day. Okay, Dale, $75,000 uh, he just made there. What about the 500 next Sunday? Does this stamp you as the favorite? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of racing to do this week. There are qualifying races and uh, the Bush class, I mean, the Bush uh, Grand National race on Saturday we're going to be in. So we'll see here. We're going to get this thing here tuned up and ready to race for Sunday. We'll see why. Oh, we'll be here. Thanks very much, Dale. And now let's go topside to Ken Squire. Thank you, Chris. I think it was a test tube of next So Earnhardt there. And that's the way plate racing was. And I don't, the announcers still haven't wrapped their minds around it yet. They ask him, you know, how the car handled. He's like, I was holding it wide open the whole race. And that's the way plate racing is. You hold it wide open the whole race. You hold it wide open and hope nobody slows down in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. So he's held, he held it wide open the whole race. Don't think you, I mean, I'm sure they learned some. They had a little bit of an advantage by being in that race and getting some uh, drafting practice as uh, before the 125s. But honestly, I don't really think 
Is there anything else to talk about that race? Earnhardt wins over the Allisons. No, Earnhardt won, but I just think it's funny. The Intimidator looks up and sees two Allisons. I don't blame him. I'd have been a little bit skittish, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the 125s, like I said, only a 21-minute video is all we get. In the first Bush Clash, uh, Jeff Bodine leads early. Rick Wilson has come from 33rd in the field, and he winds up in 7th in this clash. So here in 88, you can start seeing the Morgan McClure car running better, running better. And then we know when they get Ernie Irvin in the car in 89 or 90, that's when it really takes off. But uh, th that car's getting better. And he started 33rd. Again, this is two. there's two races. So there's like 70-some guys trying to make the Daytona 500 again. Unheard of today, but yeah, that was pretty normal back then. We see in the highlights, Bobby Allison shown to be passing Schrader for second. Then he takes uh, Rudd for the lead. 37th lap, Richard Petty gets loose, spins out under Ernie Irvin, who is driving the no, Kruger no. number two car. No, that's Ernie Irvan. Irvan. Oops. Oh, yeah, they don't, they don't know how to say his name yet. It's Ernie Irvan. Yeah, it's Ernie Irvan. I was like, who the hell's Ernie Irvan? <laughs> it sounds like he should be in Led Zeppelin or something. I didn't look it up. I thought it was a different driver. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. No, he just, that's just how Squire said his name. And I don't know if he ever changed. I think he always called him that. But Phil Barkdahl crashes Ernie Irvin on the restart. Now, Barkdahl, this is a guy. He, he's the one that we, we'll we'll talk about him again later. But he crashes Ernie Irvin on this restart, and there's a pretty decent sized wreck that happens uh, here in the in the uh, first 125. We fast forward to the last lap. Bobby Allison hangs on, uh, holds off Rusty Wallace, Ken Schrader, and the field. Um. Elliot drops a transmission. Is this the second race? Or are we still? No, this is still the. Elliot drops a transmission on the start of the second race. And when he talks to Dave Despain that he's upset at how his car was running anyway, Elliot then boldly says that Bobby Allison is definitely the car to beat. And now, he's just, he just watched. Yeah, yeah. He's just watched the yep. first race and he, he, he sees how strong Bobby is. Bill Elliott. His, he's got a case of the red ass, Andy. No doubt about it, because he knows with these restrictor plates, he was already not quite as dominant, always on the on the plate tracks. And this is the first year, this is also something we hadn't mentioned. Oldsmobile, Buick, and Pontiac all have those smaller body styles here in 1988. They figured out what the Fords did with the Thunderbirds, and they've all copied it. Chevrolet is still driving those big ass brick blocks, and I think that's why that's why the Chevys just overall wasn't as competitive. But these all these other cars are now shaped like the Fords. They're smaller. They got a they cut through the air better. And Bill Elliott has figured out between that and the restrictor plates. I think he knows his number has just been punched. Yeah, well, you got to figure. I mean, the early '80s, yeah, he he was killing it, and people they started catching up with him just a little bit at a time, and 
once the restricted place hit, it was everybody got through in the same jumble. It wasn't no, there's nobody can be dominant because you can't get away from nobody. Right. We move on and get a clip of J.D. McDuffie's car completely engulfed in flames. He crawled out of the car. Man, Andy, that car looked, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. You couldn't tell that it was a car. You could just, it looked like a fireball rolling down the track when you first saw it. You couldn't even tell it was a race car because the entire car was on fire. Yeah, the entire, I mean, you could kind of make out the tires and the front and back bumper. The rest of it was a fireball. And it. I thought he was dead because when he stops, they're still, I mean, he stops, crawls himself out of the car and is on the ground for a good, it, probably just a minute or two but it felt like 20 minutes just watching the clip yeah they're not as they're a lot quicker getting to drivers now and the, the they said the heat from the car was so intense that it actually melted the steering wheel like i guess it just it melted the steering wheel that's how hot yeah. that it was inside that car and he ended up what was third degree burns over 15 percent or something like that yeah, I think it was one of his legs and both of his hands were burnt really bad. And I don't know, was he wearing gloves? I couldn't even tell because they didn't all wear gloves then. So I'm not sure if he's wearing gloves or not. I would have to. I don't know. If, if he wasn't, I, I don't see how he had hands after that because, I mean, that yeah. whole was burning. After this wreck, then they show Kel Yarbrough trying to pass Waltrip for the lead. Going into turn one, he spins out and hits the wall. And then behind him, there's like a another, I guess it's people that maybe see him on up the track wrecking and somebody checks up and there's like eight or nine other cars wreck behind his wreck. Yeah, like I say, th this was all new to them. Like they know today with the spotters and stuff, when they have a wreck in front of them, for most of the time, everybody else kind of checks up because they know what's happening. But here, they didn't know nothing about checking up and how to get out of the throttle or none of that stuff. It was all new to them. They just knew they had to hang on and hold the pedal to the metal. Yeah, the broadcast moves on to the last lap. Walter blocks Davey Allison down the back stretch. Allison slips up and drops to third. Behind Dale Earnhardt. Waltrip in Victory Lane says he plans on staying up front on Sunday. His car was really good. That probably was the best car he ever had at Daytona. Uh, yeah, that car, it, it had wings, a jet strap to it, and a rocket shoved up his hind end. And, and it seems like it could go anywhere it wanted to in the 125. And it's kind of weird because, you know, we were just talking about the cars being big and boxy. And honestly, None of the other Chevy, even Dell Earnhardt, Earnhardt himself, never looked like Dell Earnhardt in the 500. None of the Chevys could really do all that much, but somehow Waltrip's car was just, it was good. Even for that body style, he had a really, really fast car. Well, that's one of the things that always catches you about the plate. You wonder how much um, creative engineering goes on behind the scenes that you and NASCAR need a one seat. Yeah, because none of the other Chevys were, were really, Earnhardt was close, 
but I don't think uh, Schrader was okay, Bodine, but they, they still wasn't up front. I mean, none of the other Chevys were like, you know, consistently up front the whole the whole race in the 500, except Waltrip. So he, he had figured something out that worked for those cars one more time. Well, it's like with Earnhardt, he could, he could read the draft and get up there with the draft, but when he got up there by himself, he scuffled back instantly. With Daryl, he was getting up there, and he could pull up on his lonesome and still pass people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he was still able to do – he could run pretty much anywhere he wanted to. So that was the 125s. Like we said, 20 minutes of race clips. Kind of hard to tell anything from the 125s other than, well, it's obvious Bobby Allison was fast because he was up front pretty much his whole race. And I think they said – did they say Daryl led every lap of his 125? So, you know, those probably are – Two of the best cars in Daytona. Yeah, that's the two you're going to watch out for, and everybody else is just going to be in a big pop. All right, so we will move on here in just one second, and we will recap the 1988 Daytona 500. And now on to the coverage of the actual Daytona 500. And we'll go ahead, and the very first thing we'll do is start with Chris Economaki's intro. Today is an important day for Bobby Allison, offering a chance to win a third Daytona 500 and erase the memory of his nightmarish crash of last May in Alabama, a crash that changed the character of stock car racing. As a result of that crash, engine restrictions were mandated, hopefully to make racing safer. But that wasn't the case earlier this week, for while Allison came back to win a key qualifying race, it was a day that strange things happened on the track, as neither master mechanics nor veteran drivers could get their cars to behave. So if bad luck should befall Bobby Allison today, another man to watch is in the front row, his son Davey. Unlike his father, the younger Allison has never won a Daytona, but he is not alone in that category. As two of the sports superstars, former national champion Darrell Waltrip and driver of the year Dale Earnhardt are also gunning for their first Daytona 500 victory. Who will emerge victorious? We'll soon know as CBS Sports brings you live the Daytona 500. Again, Andy, the intro. It's awesome. Yeah. It's all you need. I mean, you're flipping to CBS. You see, or you've had it on CBS that morning. This comes on. You hear Economaki talk. You just watch that one video clip. You see Allison flying into the fence. You see, you hear what Economaki's saying. You see the wrecks from the 125s. I guarantee you that, what, minute that he intros this hooks a lot of people to watch this whole race. Yeah, it's it's one of those things you always hear people that do TV talk about. At the top of the hour, you have to catch the audience. And that right there, if it don't catch you, you ain't got a heart. No, no. And Economaki does a real good job. And we move on. Mike Joy interviewing Daryl Waltrip. He says that the new restrictor plates makes the cars harder to drive because they have to set them up looser. 
Bobby Allison says that he thinks the new Buick Regal body style is the best of the new three that has the Buick, the Pontiac, and the Oldsmobile. Yeah, and that's something I noticed about Joy is they actually took a Holly carburetor and held it up and showed it to the plate to show you how much it was restricting the airflow. I don't know, simple stuff like that, it, it just adds to the whole presentation. Yeah, they don't treat you like you're two years old, but they're still showing you this is why the car's slower now. Exactly. Um, Ken Squire says that NASCAR said that Tim Richmond had too high of a level of Sudafed and Advil in the failed drug test. He was reinstated or retested, and he was fine. But NASCAR demanded medical records, and that Richmond wouldn't give up, so he remained suspended. And Andy, we know why he wouldn't give up the medical records. Yes, he had pneumonia. But he also, if they would have given up the medical records, it would have definitely came out that he also had AIDS. Yeah, I mean, that part was kind of bull to me because if you fail the first drug test, you can prove why you failed the first drug test. You take the second one, you're clean as a whistle. It ain't none of their business what is in your medical record. They should have let him wait. Yeah, I think that it's... And I mean, is Daryl Waltrip, you know, was one of my favorite drivers of all time. But I think Waltrip was one of the ones pushing to keep Richmond out of NASCAR. And I try to look at it from the driver's side. You know, they're in these cars that are going 200 miles an hour. And they think that he's messed up on cocaine. I've got, I read some newspaper articles that specifically mention cocaine. And the other drivers thought Richmond was coked out. And in one way, it's it's hindsight. We now know what was wrong. But I guess if you look at it from their side of things, it does make sense because, like, well, what does this guy have to hide if if he's medically okay? He's hiding the fact that he had a cocaine addiction last year. That's what they think that he's hiding when he's really hiding something way worse. Yeah, it's, I can't really blame the drivers for that part because, like I say, the drivers, they're just telling you what they see on the track. But as far as the organization, you know, if you can pass the drug test and you ain't passing out behind the wheel or look like some kind of crazy jackrabbit, they should let him race. Yeah, I, I think that there may have been an incident in 87, though, where I don't know if he was real tired after the Darlington race or something happened at Darlington that I would have to go back and research, but that was what pushed it over the edge and he didn't race anymore that year. So there was something with the Darlington race in 1987, the the fall race. I think it was the fall race that uh, really must've caught everybody's attention. And it was probably him being treated and just having a bad week and not really able to function like he should have. Yeah, because pneumonia, it hits everybody. That part will hit everybody different. I mean, when your oxygen levels start dropping, your body will do weird things. Oh, yeah. So the starting grid of the Daytona 500, Ken Schrader replacing Richmond in the Folgers 25 on the pole. Davey Allison second, Bobby Allison third, 
Daryl Waltrip, Rusty Wallace, Dale Earnhardt, Greg Saxon, the 50, who I don't even think we'll talk about him again. I don't know what happened with him. Um, Terry Labonte, uh, the eight car of Bobby Hill in Lake Speed, Morgan Shepard, the uh, 44 car, Rick Wilson in the 44, Sterling Marlin, Rick Wilson in the four, Neil Bonnet in the 75, who is back after, Andy, my God, how many, we talk about this all the time. Did anybody in NASCAR have any worse luck in wrecks than Neil Bonnet? Because he's back after completely shattering his leg and his hip at a wreck in Charlotte last fall. Yeah, I can't remember the exact number, but had multiple screws in place put in his leg and the hip was restructured. I mean, my Lord, man, he he has about as bad luck with wrecks as Shepard does with breakdowns. Oh, yeah, and it's it's just brutal. It's like, come on, Neil, every once in a while, when you hit the wall, you don't have to, you know, try to go through it. Just tap it. Yeah, just give it a little tap. Uh, David Hobbs. <laughs> David Hobbs is like where's Waldo in this 500. They've got him wandering around the track. But as we start the race, he's in the grandstands with some people from Alabama who've been coming to Daytona for 35 years. And you can tell that these poor people are definitely from Alabama, Andy. I don't know what you're talking about. I, everybody that watched this clip said they had an accent. I don't hear it. I, I don't think they had an accent. I don't know what y'all talking about. Our East Tennessee accent is different than that that twang that you get from Tuscaloosa or Alabama. I'll just put it well, that way. The only difference between us and Alabama is our lips move. And our cousins are a whole lot safer. <laughs> the break on, brother. We go to the raw feed for the first time. Squire says, well done, David. Uh, The British and Alabama accents in one scene. God bless America. What more can you say? We come back for the start of the Daytona 500. And immediately, Andy, I will say one thing about Bobby Allison. You say whatever you want to about drivers and family members. Bobby Allison was a stone cold killer. He didn't give one damn whether Davey was out there or not. Now, I, I know that there probably is times that he, he tried to help him. D- Davey Allison starting on the front row. The first thing Bobby does is take him three wide. He don't care that he's taking yeah. his kid three wide on the first lap. Bobby Allison is there for Bobby Allison. Well, can you imagine being in between that? I mean, they had an Allison sandwich going on there. That he did not give. I like to say I'm pretty sure that if he was in the lead and he could kind of help Davies, you know, gain a position too, he would. But if it came down to the end of it, I, I think he'd put him in the wall to win. Yeah, I mean, th- they say that you'd put your own mama in the wall to win. Bobby would have put Davy into the fence if he had to. It wouldn't have mattered. Um, a lot of moving around early in the race. Darrell Waltrip gets a big three-wide run himself because they kind of get stalled out, and he gets to the lead. Rusty Wallace. Then you have Bobby Allison, Lake Speed, and Kel y- or no, Davey Allison, top five. Three-wide for six. There's a big mess back there. Earnhardt, was, he got drop-kicked 
a lot in this race. Andy, this, as good as Dale Earnhardt was on restrictor plate tracks, I think he really went to school in this Daytona 500. He comes up with a good finish, relatively good finish at the end. But there's a lot of times in this race where he'll pull out and he'll get drop kicked. And you you can tell through the years, nobody could work a pack pack racing better than him. But here at the very first real pack race, Earnhardt wasn't, he was still learning. Yeah, and I think that helped him out, like I say, later on, because he learned if you ain't got the car to step or you can't step out, you got to pick your moments, you got to pick when you step out, who goes with you. With this, everybody, well, the whole field was still learning, and like I say, with that big old Chevy, if you step out of line, you're going backwards. Yeah, and the, the side draft thing, they hadn't learned it yet. You know, they're not really doing side drafting, and you just, he, you had, and he was real impatient, and that didn't go good together with the plate package they had for the first plate race. No, he couldn't. It was, it was moving to the point where you're, before he's always been able to wheel a car into where he wanted it with this, he had, you know, you had to learn to take what you had and make the best of it. Oh, yeah. We go, we, oh, Squire notes that there's five drivers, nine drivers in the race that are on Hoosiers. And this was, the start in 1988, they did have a Hoosier Goodyear Tire War that happens again in '94. But here in '88, one thing I didn't realize, and I don't remember where I see it, it may be in another video that I watched that was supporting the 500, just talking about some things that happened. But somewhere along the line, I saw that Hoosier at this time only had like 18 full time employees, and they're racing yeah, in NASCAR. Yeah, that's later on in this broadcast. They, I don't remember if they mentioned it on the broadcast or if it was during the commercial break where they're talking back and forth. But they did say that they only had 18 employees in the whole thing. And it's like you're running NASCAR with 18 employees. That Somebody had connections somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty impressive. So they go to the raw feed. Economaki says some infield because it was packed. Squire says, some race. And then uh, they comment, here comes the three, Andy. Of course, it's like Christmas. It's guaranteed they'll show up sooner or later. Squire then is talking about the second group. It has all the action. Uh, Waltrip gets passed by Wallace and Allison, Allison, and Speed during this break, and he drops back to fifth. They come back from commercial, they show what Squire calls the B1 Bomber Stealth Machine, referring to Earnhardt. God, I'm glad that didn't stick. Yeah. Let's put a man in black on one hand and the B1 Bomber Stealth Machine in the other and see which yeah, one that, pulls up. That's a little bit uh, of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Morgan Shepard in the pits behind the wall already. God. Or he just he can't vibrate. Again, uh, this is one thing. What if? What if he actually had, you know, halfway decent equipment? What could he have done, you know, through 
I, I don't know. I, I wish he we could re-rack it and and go back and put him in in just any any kind of a better car than he was in. Just he never could get the right car. Um, Economaki says that he don't remember a 500 where someone has been such a favorite as Bobby Allison in this year's 500. He gets to the lead. Davey goes to second. Lake Speed to third. Walter fourth. Wallace fifth. The second pack was about five seconds behind, and it looks like they're running the leaders back down, led by Schrader and Earnhardt. Um, Waltrip works his way back to the lead by the Allisons. And Mark Martin in the Strohs. Jack Roush Ford is blowing up on the back stretch on lap 20, and the caution is out. Yeah, and this is where they go back to commercial while everybody's going in for pit stops. That just baffles my imagination now, you know, in modern days versus then. Yeah, because then they wanted to show the racing on the track. Now, since in general, since there's not as much on the track, they always want to cover pit stops on the broadcast. Then it was better, as soon as the caution comes out, dump it to commercial and try to play as many commercials as you can while they're under caution to not miss green flag racing. What a freaking novel concept. Yeah, for real. I mean, it's crazy. I, I don't know. It's just a different era. Andy, with that, I, I mean, it's not like I think that I could stay glued to watch every lap of every race anyway. But do you not think when the TV rights deals come back up that NASCAR of all sports, just kind of like soccer, because soccer doesn't really have timeouts except halftime. They show soccer uninterrupted and they put different sponsors up and it's sponsored by this or sponsored by that, but they don't, it plays continuous of all sports, NASCAR or auto racing in general shouldn't really cut to commercial because you miss at some tracks, you'll miss 10 laps while they're gone. Well, that's something I got to thinking about is, I can't remember, it might have been two or three years ago, I believe it was NBC started like the last 50 laps, was uninterrupted. They would play the commercial down in the bottom corner, you know, but you were still watching everything on the track, and if something happened, it was instantaneous. You could drop back on it. And I'm like, why yeah. don't you do this the race? Yeah, Cover do it, it the whole race, yeah. even if it, even if it's only twenty five percent of the screen. If you can still see something, then you they could keep you tuned in to what's going on. You don't have people flip it like I would say flipping the channel. You know, oh well, race. Here's another commercial. They're going to be gone for three or four minutes. I'm going to flip it, and then you forget to flip it back because you get invested in a a gun smoke episode that you've watched 12 times already. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, if it's not a particularly exciting race, if you can still watch everything going on, you're more than likely to stay there versus, like you say, you go commercial for three to five minutes, flip it over here. Well, shoot, I'll just watch this for a little bit. I'll catch the end of it, you know, here in 20 minutes. Uh, they come back and they talk to J.D. McDuffie in the hospital about his injuries uh, in the 125. Well, I'm feeling pretty good. I still got that much pain in my hands. And my hands uh, got second and third degree burns on it in my leg, but 
Uh, I'm going to be all right here in a week or two, but it's, it's, it's burnt pretty bad, my hands are. But I was lucky to get out of it. The love of the sport, you know, that's, that's all I've ever done is race, and that's all I know. And I, I, I still love to do it, and I'll be back. This thing ain't going to get me down. Oh, man, Andy, that's tough because we know what happens to him in a couple of years. Um, killed at Watkins Glen in a really nasty crash. Uh, but when it's in your blood and that's what you love, that's that's what you love. And even if old J.D. McDuffie was always running around in 25th or 30th, he was giving it everything he had. Well, that's... That's one of the things that you you don't really want to say it, but it's like with him, Earnhardt, Bunt. If you pick, if you could pick the way you go out of this world doing something you love, who wouldn't pick that? I mean, if you could honestly had the choice of which way you're going to go, ninety nine percent of the people I know of would take. Hey, I want to go out doing something I love. Yeah, yeah. So. You got to look at it from that side of it too, and and we watched that wreck again, and there is, there is a couple of moments in that video they show you. You honestly, you can see the wheels and the car, um, as it's coming off the bank. But then there's a couple of seconds in that clip, and I swear to God, all you see is a fireball. You don't. The car's gone. It's just fire. Yeah, when it comes, finally comes to stop. Yeah, when it comes to stop, it's just a fireball, and you see this boot emerge and he actually has time to get out of the car and crawl literally crawl like maybe 10 15 feet before you ever see the first uh track official vehicle yeah um andy under caution (laughs) there's a they have a shot of the back stretch and i don't know why i noticed this I mean, now they have all, you know, RVs and all this other crap, which is fine. It's good. That, that It's good that they've they've cleaned up the track some. But here in 1988, it looks like just a huge junkyard down the backstretch. It kind of looks like a, like a trailer park tornado. Now, if that had been a trailer park, They'd have done had them tires stacked up and made flyer planters for their mama. That that has to be a Florida man thing. I mean, there there's no other explanation. Okay, yeah, we can't explain Florida man, so we'll move on. Uh, restart of the race. Wallace now out front. Lake Speed, Marlin, Bonnet, Labonte in the top five. Lake Speed gets by Wallace. Marlin goes with him. Uh, Lake Speed's moving early. He's got some pace. Um, Elliot's sliding back, and the announcers are uh, stunned. I mean, that Mark, poor Dave Marcus also in the pits. He had some kind of an issue. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder if he over-revved it while they were trying to come up to speed or something. Yeah, and um, Waltrip tries to go through the pack with uh, Bobby Allison pushing him. There's a random... Oh, yeah. I'll try to post this in the uh, group. So, Andy, they, they show this picture, or this, not a picture, a video, they cut to this fan in the stands. And all I can think is the iconic Chris Economaki 1986 call of, is that NFL Chicago Bears quarterback Jim McMahon 
Or is it Kathy Boda? <laughs> I don't know. First thing I thought of, what if Florida man had a kid in Alabama? You know, that's, that, this is uh, an interesting photo. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. But the, it's this poor guy. It's, I, I see why they focused on him, though. You know that those cameramen would get a kick out. It's like, hey, 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 I found one. And then it's like, get him on video. Get him on video. Get him on camera. You know, they had, I always wondered about that. If they don't scan through the crowd and be like, okay, Mark, 20 degrees left, right there. 30 degrees to the right, seat four, right there. Okay, now we're ready. I'm sure they do. Uh, Raw feed, Economaki comments that Bobby Allison seems to be running a little slower, and that Jared agrees. Squire says, He's waiting. Back with 33 laps complete. Marlin in the lead. Lake Speed, Rusty Wallace, and now Daryl Walter back in the mix. David Hobbs has now moved to the Union 76 ball on the backstretch. And he's with a NASCAR spotter who's looking for trouble on the track. Hey, this, this fella Herb right here, he had an accent. Some Alabama people didn't have the accent. This fella, he, I'm telling you, he had one of them probably Newport, you know, mountains of Gatlinburg accent. The thing that I couldn't keep quit thinking about during this clip, while Hobbs is talking to this spotter about what he's supposed to be doing, is what if there was something going on at this time that the spotter should have been calling out? And all you do is see this big fireball and a car go flying by, and the spotter goes, uh oh. Well, that's true because he asked the spotter what he does up there, and he says it's the spotter's job to spot things. You know, and he's looking at Hobbs the whole time. <laughs> His job went not to spot anything. This is kind of like the. The guy in office space that they're paying and they don't know they're paying. He just shows up and they're like, just just let him be. We're not paying him. Yeah, that, that's Bill. He's been here for years. Uh, there is nine cars in the lead draft. Waltrip and Earnhardt to third and fourth. Some drivers are cutting down tires, um, which is strange. Wilson cuts one. Yarborough also cuts one. And there's a wreck out of turn four. Connie Saylor, caution out. Rick Wilson gets his lap back under the caution. We go to the raw feed. Economaki says something must be cutting all these tires. And they're kind of arguing in the booth on whether it's a Hoosier tire problem. Um, and we find out that I don't really think that had anything to do with it. Um, they're just, I guess they're running over crap on the track. And you can hear them eating while they're trying. So they're they're having this argument and they're trying to choke down a ham sandwich at the same time. I need a Diablo sandwich and a cola, please. And make it fast. Back and they show the crash. Connie Saylor from Johnson City, Tennessee. Economaki says that the freshman Monsieur Debris is on the track. And yeah. <laughs> anytime that Economaki ever says that, I guess every he probably pulls it out every race, and it never fails to crack up Ken Squire, which is great that you can always catch Ken Squire with that one comment. Yeah, but he needs to leave the French to Hobbs. You know, let the British do do it. It sounds more sophisticated. Yeah, poor Economaki. Raw feed. Someone is immediately blowing their nose. Like, that, you know, they didn't, no, no mute. 
Yeah, they was worried about Richmond doing coke. I heard snorting and sniffing and blowing a nose. I ain't accusing nobody of nothing, but if anybody was doing that kind of thing, it was up in the booth. Yeah. Ned wants to know the status of Kel Yarborough. Economaki asked about AJ Foyt. You hear a girl say that he's 25th. Economaki goes, huh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. Then he says, Trevor Boys, fifth place. And let's all let's just be honest here. That is pretty crazy. Yeah, that was a shock. Back with the race recap after a hundred miles, there's been six leaders, nine lead changes, four cars out of the race. Waltrip Schrader, Neil Bonnet, Bobby Allison, Trevor Boys are the top five. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, one of these things is doesn't belong here. A couple of laps later, after the restart, Bobby Allison drives by Schrader for second. Then we have Kelly Arborough crashing in turn four. In and get out quickly are going to be the ones up in front because it's better than 200 feet. We've got a crash in turn four again. A car spinning, slithering, slamming into the wall. And it looks like Kelly Arborough's car, indeed, Kelly Arborough's machine, has socked the wall. It spun a couple of times, then nailed it. And it's going to bring out the third caution of the day. Okay, Andy. Um, you may be on to something here with the things that are going on in the booth because I did, in fact, see the car spin. I did, in fact, see the car slam. But if, Sw- if Squire was seeing the car slither, maybe he's on something. Because <laughs> I sure yeah. didn't see the car slithering. I I don't think that would be cocaine related, but who knows? I've never went down that road. They're good, but they go back. Here we go back to commercial because there's a wreck. They're trying to figure out what Wykel keeps wrecking. Jarrett says he just never got his car right uh, for that 500, but we find out that that's what <laughs> didn't have nothing to do with the, the the car this time. Some of the leaders only changed two tires on the caution. Some changed four, so. The restart gets all jumbled up. Bobby Allison, Neil Bonnet, Harry Gant, and Bill Elliott are up front. And Allison just takes off on the first lap. He's gone. He dri- like he just drives away from the field, which is crazy. Harry Gant to second. Um, Bonnet drops to fourth. Trevor Boys is in the lead pack, but now a lap down. Which now, Andy, makes me wonder... <laughs> was Trevor Boys actually fifth before, or was he a lap down and they just wasn't aware of it? I, and the way that they continually question NASCAR's uh, placement of cars, I, I wonder that myself. I think he was a lap down and they just thought he was in fifth, or NASCAR had him placed in fifth and later corrected it. Because we hear later on, you know, a bunch of times, you know, is this where this person is? Well, no, they're over here. And then 20 laps later, you realize, no, they wasn't in the first place. It makes me wonder if that NASCAR spotter was actually the one that's scoring tre- uh, um, the Trevor Boys during the uh, during his little interview there, and he he loses he loses him for a lap. Yeah, he might have huh. been in the sixth six ball. Probably. Green flag racing. Now Hobbs has made his way to the infield. Yeah, Hobbs is on the move. There's a guy with an axe chopping wood. 
And right as he ends the segment, there's some older man lunging at David Hobbs. I only can imagine that he's going to try to eat him. I I can't. I have two points. Number one, the guy split in the woods. He don't know what he's doing. He he takes way too long for that. That kind of sucks. And secondly, the older gentleman. It looks like he is reaching for David Hobbs' um, mountain oyster. They was fixing to be a cookout right there. He was either going to eat him or he was going to love him, but something bad was about to happen to David. He he was about to have a mountain experience. Raw feed, Lake Speed's in trouble. Can't see much from the car except uh, from Davy Allison's in car except smoke. They come back from the commercial. There's no caution. Speed is like barely moving on the track, but he finally does make it back into the pits. And man, that's that's actually a shame. Lake Speed probably had a top five car. He was fast. He was always good at Daytona, the best I remember. I mean, he's yeah, one of yeah. them, you know, the, you know, freaks of nature. I guess. They uh, talk about how Michael Waltrip gets in the race. He bought, or his owner bought his way into the race after Michael missed the 500. They spend $50,000 to get that country time car in the race. Jim Sauter, they talked to him because that's the car that he took over. And I don't think that he was real happy about that arrangement, Andy. No, he, he he's one of them. He understood it, I guess is what he said. But what I couldn't get over, father of 12, I, I do good dealing with the three of my own, let alone 12. He must have been Mormon or something. He didn't have time to race. He was he was knocking it out of the bottom. He was, he was, he was knocking that thing out. Yeah, he, he was finishing first everywhere he went. Whew. Lake Speed uh, was talked to by Despain, and Speed says that he lost an engine, which it's, I don't know why they couldn't figure that out with him limping back to the pits. But I, they didn't there. They was like, oh, he hit the wall. No, you you don't slow down that much from hitting the wall or hit, no, getting you, hit. Look at Kale. He was still going faster than that after he beat the whole side of his car off. Yeah. Um, you got Waltrip storming through the field from somewhere around 24th on the restart. He's up to sixth. Bobby Allison was so freaking fast that he ran away from the pack by himself. He's a good two seconds ahead of Earnhardt. That yeah, car no. was on a rail. Yeah. Like I said, it might have been creative engineering or whatever, but he didn't need nobody. No. Click off some laps. The chase pack closes back up on Allison with Earnhardt, Bonnet, Gant, and uh, Waltrip coming. Raw feed, you can hear a girl ask if they need any water. Economaki says no thanks unless you put some scotch in it. Chris Economaki wants to get hammered and have a good time. Yes, that is old school, baby, right there. You talking about get me liquored up in the studio and I will give you entertainment. I can see Squire going along with this for some reason, but can you see poor Ned Jarrett when Economaki says something about Scotch, just just looking at Chris and just shaking his head, like what is yeah, wrong with you? You know the straight leg, you know Jarrett over there trying to create a professional atmosphere, and like you said, Economaki he's to the point now he don't care if he's just having a good time. Let the party begin. 87 laps into the race, Bobby Allison, Earnhardt are into the pits. 
Waltrip's out front with Bonnet second. Third is Labonte, but he's not with the leaders. A lot more green flag stops come. We go to a raw feed. They're talking about halfway coming up soon. Squire thinks Waltrip's out of gas and he's into the pits. They come back. Mike Joy says that Waltrip did run out and he changed two tires. Uh, Bonnet hasn't changed tires the whole race yet. So that shows that the tire wear really didn't. That ain't why the, some of those guys were wrecking because of tires. They were running over stuff. No, because wasn't he on the Hoosiers as well? I mean, that's our yeah. member. Yeah, Bonnet was on Hoosiers. Waltrip is five seconds ahead of Allison after the pit stop cycle. Ned Jarrett and Economaki both think that Waltrip can go uh, one less stop if it stayed green. Ken Squire was trying to argue that the scoreboard wasn't right, and then he figures out that they are actually right, and he was wrong. Maybe him and Economaki got the wrong waters. They got them switched up or something. <laughs> Allison has Earnhardt and Bonnet with him for a three-car pack. A lot more laps to click off. Waltrip stays in the lead. We go to raw feed. Squire has to go off the headset for two minutes. And God only knows why. He's probably trying to figure out where Hobbs is this time. That poor fellow was all over the place. I got to go check on David Hobbs. I'm pretty sure he was being molested right as we uh, left him the last time. Yes, he may be playing a banjo as we speak. They go to the piece on Dell Earnhardt because it's just all spread out. Maybe this was, they didn't want Squire not to be on um, the broadcast. So they cut into this piece that's supposed to be a few minutes long with Dell Earnhardt. But about, what, a minute into the clip, we get this. Dale Earnhardt grew up in the town of Kannapolis, North Carolina. Bad trouble, bad trouble. Okay, a terrible crash. Richard Petty's car has turned over seven or eight times coming off turn four and was just struck by another car. It's one of the most violent accidents we've ever seen at the Daytona International Speedway here as leader Darrell Waltrip squeezes through. Petty's car nosed into the wall and then went sideways and barreled end over end and then side over side time after time. A terrible accident involving the man who has won this race seven times over the years. Alan Kowicki in car number seven was involved. His car is limping towards the pits, and there is the damage number 43 STP Pontiac of Richard Petty out there on the track. It was really a, a happened at one of the highest speed sections on the track, and we trust that Petty is okay in the car. Phil Barkdahl was involved in number 73, and we're trying to identify which other car. There's number 23, Eddie Beerschwal, Jeff Bodine in car number 15, and of course, Richard Petty, the man who has won 200 races in NASCAR events. 50-year-old grandfather from Randleman, North Carolina, is still in the car as a safety man, and the ambulance crews are out there now trying to minister to his needs. It was one of the worst accidents we've seen here in quite a while, Chris. As you can see, the damage to the back of the car. Now the safety people are there as the other cars weave their way through. This is Trevor Boys in car number 20. Eddie Beerswell. Yeah, Eddie Beerswell in car number 23. He hit the, the wall very hard with the back of his car. And it looks as though Beerschwal uh, is, uh, is okay. They don't seem to be concerned themselves. But parts of Petty's Pontiac are all over the racetrack. It's going to take a long, long time to clean up this damage as they're running the cars through the pits now. 
the uh, because of the debris right up over the, the race so the racetrack has moved down to pit road now from the track itself due to the debris that has come off of petty's cars it crashed over and over and over after hitting the outside wall at high speed most of the drivers are as they're coming down pit road making pit stops as they normally do on caution flags 107 laps complete Let's take a look in replay at what has happened out of turn four. Richard Petty was running in a pack of cars and he starts the back end starts to go around and looked he like tagged. he might have been tagged by, by the car. car number 73 of Phil Barkdahl. And you can see Petty's car just cramming and turning over up against the wall and other cars coming in. There's Barkdahl hitting him as he came by and the Eddie Beerswall car hitting one of the tires that came off the car. From another angle. That looks like the crash at Darlington years ago, Ned. Fortunately, it was staying on the nose of the car for so long, Ken, so it was not didn't look like it was really taking hard bounces down onto the pavement. And it dispels some of the energy. You must remind the viewers that these cars are built to take these kind of crashes. And there's Phil Barkdahl hitting the cement wall right in front of us. The chromoly frames that serve as a roll cage up under the roof to keep the car from crushing down on the driver. So, I don't know why, but there's times in your life you remember, like, and I mean, obviously, we're both old enough to remember 9-11. I remember exactly what I was doing, exactly where I was, and there's just things that you remember. I remember exactly what I was doing when Richard Petty's wreck happened. I was playing in the side yard at my old house because I was bored because the race was all spread out. And my dad comes, runs outside, and he said, Richard Petty just got killed. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm like nine years old, eight years old. Um, and uh, I remember exactly, I can remember exactly where I was at in the yard when he came out and told me about this. So it's like one of those things that just for some reason has stuck with me my whole life. And that wreck, I mean, that was, it looks really, really bad. But the way that car was flipping, dissipating energy was the best thing that could have happened for it. So really, as bad as it looked, I think Brett Bodine hitting him after the car stopped is probably what broke his ankle and probably was the worst hit out of the whole thing. Yeah, because, well, like you say, I I remember, I remember certain things like I remember the fact that I was at my mama's house when you called and told me that Dale Sr. died. I remember sitting there at the, my old house watching Dale Sr. win the, eight, you know, the Daytona 500. And I remember I was asleep on the couch when this race was going on, because like I say, I was eight, nine years old. I was asleep on the couch, and all of a sudden I hear my daddy scream out, oh, God, they killed Richard. And I didn't know... I, I woke up in the start because I didn't know who Richard was, where Richard was, and you know I didn't realize the race was still on. It kind of, you know, caught me off guard. But yeah, everybody that saw that thought that that's it. He's dead. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the natural reaction when you see a car flip that violently. And you know, Ken Squire, he's the economy. They come back. Ned, that's iconic too, Ned Jarrett, because he don't know that they're back from this thing. He's just, he's just watching it. You know, big trouble, big trouble. And then economy, you can tell somebody said you're live because he, he jumps in and, and takes over. Yeah, you know Squire is probably like in, just oh. went to the bathroom or something. Yeah. And he's like, he's he is sitting on the toilet, and you hear, get out, get out, get up. Like, what happened? Richard Petty's dead. You've got to come and announce this. <laughs> See, that's one of the things I understand what they talk about now. You know, after it's over with, it's funny, but at the time, it's not. But no. yeah, that's one of them. Just running wide open with his pants around his ankles, trying to get back to the booth. Oh, I got to call it. Oh, Lord. And the the sad thing is, the people that that may not even be paying attention to the monitors see Squire running by them with his pants (laughs) around his ankles and don't think anything of it because that's just a normal Sunday. Yep, it's like, yep, that's NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord, oh. what a terrible. We get, we get a lot of replays. They go to raw feed after a while, and everybody wants to pile on Phil Barkdahl, and I'm still not 100% sure if he hit him and caused the wreck or if Petty was getting loose and he hit him and it caused the wreck, even all these years later because there's no video that, it really shows what happened, but everybody does want to pile in on, on Barkdahl. And after he did take out half the field in the 125 on Thursday, maybe they're, that's why he's not getting the benefit of the doubt. Well, you got to it, – it's another one of those things that we've seen enough restrictor plate racing now to realize that you can be two feet off somebody's back spoiler, take the air off of them, and they're going to go around, and then it looks like you hit them. But back then, they didn't have the slow, as good a slow motion replay. They didn't have as good a camera angle. So that's one of them 50 50. You can flip a coin. Either you hit him or you just took the air off. Yeah. And back then, the, originally, when they got the plates, you could move the spoiler wherever you wanted to. So most of them was as flat as they could stand it. So there was no downforce on the back ends then. And now they're standing straight up, and they still get sideways sometimes. Yeah, I mean, so you got to figure. I don't know the the way it looks to me. It looks like Teddy got the air off of it. The rear end come around, and then Bart Dahl just finished spinning him around. I don't know, but could be wrong. But I don't think he meant to. They talked to AJ Foyt. Uh, he thinks Richard's going to be okay. He was in the infield care center. He says that Richard was conscious and looked like he'd be okay. Until I whip, <laughs> and then AJ did after the cameras quit rolling. Say until I go back in there and kick his ass myself. He's down. I'm gonna take him out. Yeah, now is the time. <laughs> yeah, now's the time. This is all building yeah. up from the 1983. Uh, yeah, they're coming. Be like. Uh, Stone Cold coming in on Mr. McMahon, and we have AJ Foyt in a doctor's mask, and he hits Petty with a bedpan. Oh my God! Oh, oh. Lord, now that would have been quality entertainment. 
they show that the fence has been compromised. It needs repairs. There's still all. Oh, when we were watching the replay, Andy, they were pitting cars a lap after this happened. So you've got Petty out there. Who knows? Nobody knows how bad he's hurt. There's shit all over the track. I mean, I don't know if they can drive. I think they're having to drive on pit road because there's so much debris on the track. But there's also three cars crashed in the pits on pit road, and Alan Kowicki's barely off of pit road, and they're pitting cars, and they have no yeah. they have no speed limit. So you've got guys nope. that have climbed out of cars, walking. The cars are on fire, smoking on pit road. This looks like a scene out of a freaking war movie. Yeah, it. It's kind of like Mad Max has went crazy because there's bodies everywhere, there's cars everywhere, tires laying around, and they're still just going about their business. And this is going to take a long time on the uh, cleanup. And I wonder why they didn't red flag the race. I have a theory. It's too oh. communist. This is the 80s. We will not have a red flag here. This is America. Yes, this is the, uh, is this the year? No. This is shortly after Rocky defeats Yvonne Drago, though. It's not, just a couple of years removed. Yeah, it's right around that same area. Um, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, and knowing what we hear later in the race, I think they didn't red flag it because they knew the Lakers and Celtics game was going to be on CBS later, and maybe CBS told him, "You better, by God, not red flag this race because you're not going to get to get to the end of it. We'll we will catch you for basketball." Maybe they told. Maybe that was said. You know, it's a it's a good point because you know they might have because you got to figure like you know this is '88, so you got the Birds, Celtics, and the Magic Lakers. I mean, oh yeah. They might have told them, look, we'll give you the first quarter, but after that, if you if you run this thing past halftime, we're cutting you out. Yeah, I, I just now thought of that because of what That's, we hear later in the race. Because that's the only time I've ever seen the NASCAR. Well, I mean, you know, you've probably seen a lot more back in, but it's the only time I've ever seen cut in with a basketball update on a NASCAR race. Oh, yeah. We learn during all this mess from Ken Squire that Petty has a broken ankle. They talked to Phil Barkdahl. He said that he thinks something happened to Petty and that's what caused him to get into him. Alan Kowicki talks to David Hobbs, who says he's going to try to get back in the race. They interview Eddie Burchwell and he looks plum goofy. That I've never seen anybody try to pull off a ball cap sweatband combo. And, but by George, he tried it. He says that he hit debris and then Brett Bodine, and that that sent Brett into Petty, and then Burchwell hit Petty himself also. Um, that was, like I said, that was the bad part about that wreck. The spinning down the fence, that wasn't too bad, but when he got back down on the track and stopped, he was driver's side, and they hit him again. Well, the worst thing about all this is Burchwell never hit Brett Bodine that I can see in the replay. Brett Bodine hit something that blew his tire that sent him spinning into Petty, and I didn't see Burchwell hit Petty after Bodine hit him. I don't know. Burchwell did hit something. 
but I don't think he hit Petty. And I know he didn't yeah, hit maybe, Bonite. Maybe he hit a you know, a piece of something or a part, I don't know, but like I say, Bodine's going down through there and I don't know if something cut his tire because it looks like he had Petty missed and then all of a sudden he just flies right into him. Yeah, Chris Economaki makes the bold statement that says, I think this is the end of Richard Petty's career. Ned Jarrett disagrees. We show another replay, and it does show that Birchwell never touched Bodine um, until, yeah, he hit, that's who he hit. He hit Bodine after Bodine hit Petty. That's what Birchwell hit. He must, maybe he couldn't see because the damn headband was over his eyes. Yeah, he fell down and blocked his vision. That's what it was. Dave Despain asked Dale Inman point blank if this will retire Richard Petty, and he just says, I don't think so. He said that he still enjoys it, probably, but probably didn't enjoy that crash. Uh, said that Petty may be kept overnight. Richard Childress says that Earnhardt was really concerned about Petty after driving by and seeing the, all the carnage, and he wanted updates as soon as he could get them. They go to the raw feed. Ned Jarrett says Rusty has damage. They need to talk about him. Uh, Squire is totally unconcerned, says, well, he hasn't gone down a lap. So mm -hmm. Ned Jarrett is like legitimately like, oh, this is a story. We're going to talk about Rusty. Little Squire's like, he's not a lap down. Screw him. Yeah. Yeah, screw him more. Like, he ain't part of the story. What are you talking about, boy? Yeah, you can hear a lot of background chatter with the producers. You can't really tell what all they're saying, but there's still a lot of talking going on. Uh, 270 miles into the race, there's still 18 cars on the lead lap. Now we have Dave Despain with Richard Petty's daughters. Richard's daughter, Rebecca, had a little bit of tear in her eye there. I think she was a little upset by all this earlier. But Lisa, you tell me that uh, things don't look so bad in there. No, they let us talk to him for about five minutes. And he said he was giving the doctors and the nurses a hard time and said he was ready to get up and get out of there. But they were going to take him to the hospital and keep him overnight, I think. Will your dad get back in a race car after this? Oh, sure. Well, that answers all that speculation up top side, Ken, directly from the Petty family. So there you go, Economaki. His daughters, like, not even no hesitation. Sure. He's going to get back yeah, in the car. He'll be back in the car tomorrow if they let him. I don't know how I've ever missed this, but have you ever noticed all the Petties have the same tone, accent, and pitch in their voice? Yeah, and the one that didn't talk looks exactly like Richard. <laughs> it does. It looks like a female shorter version of Richard Petty. Check really this does. picture. You have to see it. Glasses yeah. and all. Yeah. yeah, she even has the glasses. Uh, David Hobbs outside of the Petty transporter. There's fans outside the gate looking in. Back to a raw feed commercial. Ken Squire says, only a 30. I call him back. He then goes, hello? I took my headset off. <laughs> you just have to hear how, like, it sounds like they're having some issues up in the booth, too. They show the whole Earnhardt piece again that they tried to show before. They come back from that. They talk to Ricky Rudd. He says he really couldn't tell what happened because there was a lot of smoke. He said they couldn't get the handle right on their car this week, and he has been uh, very disappointed. Another raw feed. Ken Squire wants them to talk to Harry Hyde to find out what's wrong with Schrader's car. Economaki is once again blowing his nose and now asks, when are they off the air? Squire says, what does he say, Andy? 
When it's over. When it's over. And Economaki is annoyed now. He said, I know that, but what's the scheduled time? Ken Squire says four. So I don't know what's going on up in the booth, but they're they're about to throw fists. <laughs> Economaki and Ken Squire is about to have a throwdown. They might not have been joking about the scotch. That's the only thing I can figure out. Possibly. Yeah, at this point yeah. they've been under they've been under caution and yeah. for the petty wreck probably for thirty, thirty five minutes. They probably they had plenty to drink in that short amount of time. Running order after yeah. 122 laps. Schrader, uh the fifty five of Phil Parsons, Harry Gant, Neil Bonnet, Jeff Bodine, Bill Elliott, Terry Labonte. Ricky Rudd at the time, but he wrecked uh, the four car and the 44. Raw feed notes, Ned says they've given the field one to go. Squire wants to see the three and the 26 shown on the broadcast after the restart. Correction, three and 28. They come back. Ken Squire goes over the running order for the start. Uh, Phil Parsons and Harry Gant bringing them to the green. You get Gant to the lead. Parsons dropping like a rock. Neil Bonnet the second. But now Bobby Allison, three wide, trying to get to the front. He's chopped off. Uh, Neil Bonnet to the lead. Bodine to second. Waltrip hung up in a big pack behind all this. Derek Cope spins on the back stretch, and there's another caution. So this was a short caution. They go back to green. Neil Bonnet in the lead. Bodine, Allison, Earnhardt, the top four. They're 135 laps in. Neil, Bo- no, Allison Bobby ducks out, goes by Bodine for the lead with the help of Earnhardt, who then tries to pass Allison, but uh, he, he couldn't do it. They stay side by side. Uh, Allison hangs on, and Earnhardt tucks in behind him. Schrader and Waltrip are in the second pack trying to draft by all the slower cars. Bobby Allison gets the lead, Earnhardt to second, Neil Bonnet back to third. Ken Squire asked Ned Jarrett if he's worried about Dale Jarrett after seeing Petty like that. I, so uh, This happens. You've got a kid in the race. Ken uh-huh. Squire has just, you've just seen probably the worst flip in Daytona in a while. Pretty bad. I mean, the visual was bad anyway. And then you ask Ned, oh, by the way, hey, what, you know, Ned, I, you know, Dale's out there. What do you what do you think about him out there running? Because, you know, he could do the same thing that Patty just did. Huh? What do you think, Ned? What do you think? Andy. <laughs> some, I really wish Economaki would have punched Squire in the face now. <laughs> yeah, it'd been now, one now, of now, now Ned Jarrett is the one trying to jump across the table at Ken Squire. Yeah, of all the people, you're you're gonna say this to Ned Jarrett, probably as far as in the booth, one of the most docile creatures I've ever seen. And I did. I just wanted to hear whack, whack, pow, you know. It was like an old Batman cartoon or something, you know. Just not you... the hell. And what the hell you mean? I, my son's out there racing. I didn't want to think about that. Yeah, but but Jarrett composed himself, and he thought about it for just a second, and he said, well, if... If Richard Petty can survive that crash with only a broken ankle, then he feels good about NASCAR safety. It's like, what was he supposed to say, skin? Like, I think they should stop the race right now. I got to go get my boy out of the car. I mean, you know the risks when you get in the car. 
but you don't need to be reminded about the risks. 20 minutes after Richard Petty was almost just a greasy spot out of turn four. Yeah, you you don't do it like that. Yeah, you know, it's William. Well, are you concerned or you know something along the way? You know, not. Hey, your kid's down there. Are you worried about him? Well, no. I, you know, as a father, no. Of course, I'm not worried about him. I mean, if they were, they should have asked Bobby Allison that question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can hear that. Now, Bobby Allison would have had some, uh, shall we say, prime choice words for him. Oh, Lord. Okay, so Earnhardt makes a move for the lead, and I can only play this clip. Hold on, because you'll you'll know in a second why. It is a Chevrolet against a Buick. Here they come to the line. Crowd is on its feet, cheering at the strike. They're going to make it three wide. Ah. Down to the inside. Here comes Bonnet. Three deep, going to turn number one. Neil Bonnet, bottom of the race track. Swinging in the corner. Earnhardt right in the middle. Stuffs it in there. If you don't believe Neil Bonnet will mix it up with you, just give it the opportunity. He seized it. Here he comes. Back straight away. Bonnet wants first place from his old hunting pal. Neil laughs a lot. He says the only thing that he has not hit me with is the stuff we carry around when we're hunting. Let's see if they mix it up here. Bonnet on the inside and his boon companion in the offseason, Earnhardt, on the outside. Wheel to wheel at 190 miles an hour. You can't get it much better than this. Here's Waltrip moving. Oh, they touch for a moment. They just nipped each other. Bonnet looking over at Earnhardt and saying, no way. Am I going to let you take this without a fight? Back they go, and look at this tremendous assault. Earnhardt springs up the inside into the lead. That's a side-by-side -side running, slows him down. It's amazing. Bonnet saw an opportunity. To, he grabbed it and took it and walked to play it back and let them slow down and then whipped by them to the lead. That's right. They snapped the whip, and Earnhardt, or rather, uh, Waltrip here was on the end of it, and it thrust him into the lead. What kind of what exactly what kind of noise did Chris Akonovacki make right there? I can only uh, liken it to one of if you know the comedian Jerry Clowers, you know, I shot a yeah. fire monkey. Ah! <laughs> Somebody put something extra in his seat or something. I don't know, but that was that was um, it was a moment. It was a moment. That was a, that was pretty good racing right there too. Uh, they get together. Bonnet's not going to give Earnhardt an inch. They kind of get side by side and slow each other down. And Waltrip gets a huge run, and he brings Baker. So Waltrip and Baker drive by everybody and go into the lead. You can see here, it's kind of like in '83 in a way where if two people get side by side, it slows them down. But unlike '83. You couldn't get three wide then because the cars were just or not much. They they goes too out of control. But they punch such a big hole in the air here that when they get side by side and you have a run coming and you haven't had to back off, you can get a monster run with the early restrictor plates here and Waltrip just bloat around everybody. Yeah, it wasn't even close and like I say it, it's a whole nother level of racing, and they're still trying to learn the ways how to do it, and it's all trial and error at this point. They go to an interview with Bobby Allison asking how it feels to race with his son. He says there's positives and some drawbacks, too. And it, as soon as he says drawbacks, Economaki starts cracking up. And 
Bobby basically said that Davey is also a competitor now, to which to him is also a drawback. And he don't want another competitive guy out there that can take wins away from him. And Andy is, that's about as old school as you can get right there. Yeah, that's one of those, I, I love my son and all, but I screw that bastard. <laughs> we should have put him in an Indy car, get, kept him away from oh, me. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he should be racing go karts or maybe off road, put him on a motorcycle or something. They go back to a raw feed, Economaki S. Ned Jarrett, who has the best car, Walter per Allison. And he said for a long time he thought it was Walter, but now he thinks it's Allison. And Economaki said Walter could just have his tires going away. Back from commercial, Allison in the pits for gas. A lap later, Elliott, Earnhardt, Bodine in the pits. Another lap, Allison, uh, Davey Allison in the pits. Buddy Baker, Neil Bonnet, Rusty Wallace all out there in the next lap. They go back to commercial. Ken Squire now blowing his nose. And he said that he he done it as a joke, apparently, because he said he couldn't do this. He couldn't not do it in front of the producer or something. He wants to see some intervals. Schrader is in the pits. Waltrip's still out there and in the lead, 166 laps in the books. They come back from commercial. Waltrip's still out there. So is Rusty Wallace and Terry Labonte. They talked to Waltrip's gas man who said that he wanted to get a quick stop when they do come in. They go a few more laps. Terry Labonte's in and out of the pits. Waltrip's drafting with anybody he can. He's drafting with lap cars. And now we're back to David Hobbs, who's now where Petty crashed. And there's some fans trying to get into the shot or getting shooed off by the security. The guy that was in the infield is still stalking him. He's now made it to the grandstand somehow. Still trying to still trying to get a piece of David Hobbs. He wants the hob. He wants the hob. 17 now in the pits. And he kept waiting on the caution. And I swear to God, as soon as he comes into the pits, it's Harry Gant Rex on the backstretch. And uh, the leaders, I'll come back in and get four tires. So now we go to the raw feed. There are 176, 77 laps in the race. You can hear the producer saying something about the NBA game. Squire says, great. The game was supposed to come on about 20 minutes ago. Lakers-Celtics. Um, they come back. Ken Squire says, let's go to the L.A. Forum where he kicks it to Dick Stockton. But since this was the raw feed, we don't we don't get that. We stay with the race. Not much. They don't even really talk during this raw feed. They go straight back to commercial. They come back from commercial, and they show Petty's crash again. The lap cars, for some reason, on this restart are having an issue. They are three wide. They're all over the place. They're about to wreck the leaders trying to get in line. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, it's like somebody missed a gear or something and just piled the whole bunch up. Yeah, they were, I legitimately thought they were going to run into the, the lead lap cars on the outside. 18 laps to go. Phil Parsons, Davey Allison, Waltrip, Bobby Allison, Buddy Baker, top five. Immediately, Waltrip goes down trying to get to the lead, and he does. But then the 12 takes it three wide on the back stretch. They're side by side into three. Davey stays behind Daryl for a minute, pushing him, but then he slides down behind his dad. And you have Bobby and Daryl side by side on the backstretch 
all the way around the track one time on the next lap. They're still side by side down the back stretch. But Walter passed Phil Parsons behind him, and he just don't have, he can't stay with him. And Chris Economaki said, he's talking about daddies right at this point. Um, oh, and that's especially disturbing after the <laughs> earlier. <sighs> Maybe Hobbs is his leather daddy. The three's in the pits with the flat tire. Waltrip drops to the back, or drop, drops back to sixth. Um, then Waltrip drops back to the next pack, and it's like he's gone. I don't know what happened, but he's just, he's just, it's like something flipped a switch, and his car quit running all of a sudden. There's a debris caution yep. um, with 13 laps to go, and I'd, Andy says to check out the guy getting the debris. I missed this. What happened? Oh, this man is dedicated. He hops out of the truck, grabs the debris, runs back to the truck, does a nosedive into the truck. All you see is his feet in the air inside the back of the truck as they take off down the road, and the guy's sitting there beside him and laughing at him. It is glorious. Pick it up. He was wanting that race to go back to green fast. He was ready to go home. That's all you say. There's no now they say there's no broken bones for Petty is confirmed. I don't know how you go from a confirmed broken ankle to no broken bones at all. But well, they had, you got to remember this is the same man. What was it back in Darlington when he had that same kind of flip and they asked him when he broke his neck before and he said I didn't know I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean Petty's tough, but uh, the doctors apparently misdiagnosed him in the infield care center. On the restart with 13, with 10 laps to go, Bobby Allison, Davey Allison, Buddy Baker, Phil Parsons, Terry Labonte, and Neil Bonnet. Single file, everybody's trying to figure out what to do. Then the 88 moves out to try to get by Davey for second into turn three. And then he tries to make the move on to Bobby Allison on the inside, but Bobby blocks him. Then Davey runs up to his outside. And I don't know why, but Phil Parsons and Terry Labonte stay with Davey. And Buddy Baker gets drop kicked. Now, Andy, maybe this is just because it's early restrictor plates and, and guys didn't know exactly what to do. But I would think if I was in that pack, and Bobby Allison has the best car out there for sure. And Davey probably has the second, third, fourth best car out there, but it's his son. And you see Baker make a move. Why the hell wouldn't you go with Baker? And it, yeah. Because you need to break the Allisons up and get them out of the lead. Yeah, you've either got to beat them or you got to break them up. One of the two. Because if they stick nose to tail together, you ain't going to pass it. So there's, there's like six laps to go now, and Bobby and Davey, Bill Parsons, Terry Labonte, Neil Bonnet, and uh, Ken Schrader. There's about 15 cars in the lead draft. Baker's at the end of the lead draft now, but he's still trying to move around. He's the only one really making moves. Three laps to go. They're talking about Davey making a move. Economaki says that if he don't make the pass, he'll fall back to third. Emphatically, Ken Squire says, who cares about second? He's done. <laughs> done with Economaki. 
the, then we have uh, we'll let we'll let Squire bring you home on the last lap. Out of turn number four. Here's Bobby Allison, the two-time champion. What must be going through his mind right now? Here's the white silk from Harold Kinder. Last lap. Parsons lies third. Texas Terry Labonte is in fourth. Neil Bonnet, the third member of that Alabama gang, back in fifth. And those two leaders draw away a bit. Davey Allison coming after his father. Looks down inside as they take it high in turn number two. Back straight away, final time to decide it all here this afternoon. Now, Davey, what are you going to do? He's got less than half a lap to do. And they have a net lead, and I believe this is going to be a battle between the father and son. I don't think anybody Davey. else can try it, but here he comes. He's going to do the it. Bottom. He's down low. Bobby Allison high. Davey Allison trying the inside move. Bobby Allison holds him off. They come to the stripe. And the winner of the 30th annual Great American Race, Bobby Allison, Davey Allison in son in second, Judy Allison ecstatic. What a tremendous family performance. Look at him, Bobby waving to Davey. <laughs> Did you hear Davey saying, I made a try for him at turn four, but he was too strong. Well, those fans of David Hobbs interviewed at the first of the race said, I think it'll be the Alabama gang. Here they are. The Alabama gang has conquered the Daytona 500 in its 30th running. What? what? That was kind of an anticlimactic last, climatic last lap. Um, I don't. I'm still trying to figure out if they're if they just wasn't aware how the draft was going to work. I think part of the problem was Phil Parsons was in third and he did not have a car that should have been up there. I don't know how he was in third. He kept getting dropped back every time that he would get up front through pit strategy, but somehow he he hung on this time, but. He he wasn't fast enough to pull up to do anything, and Neil Bonnet races Earnhardt as hard as he does anybody. Neil Bonnet will race anybody real hard, so you would think him in fifth coming on the white flag would make a move, but it seemed like everybody was, they didn't know what to do. Maybe they thought that Davey was going to try to do a slingshot down the back stretch and they would all go, but it was just weird because nothing happened really. Well, like I say, it's the it's the first time that they've done this, and they're trying to figure out exactly who do I go with, when do I make the move. If Davey would have dropped out, maybe even a lap sooner, maybe somebody would have went with him. But that's a whole lot of maybes for something he ain't never done before. Yeah, it's it was just a strange ending to the race. Um, I do think Davey looked like he made a half-hearted move in three and four and it looked like he was gaining on him and then all of a sudden he just falls back in line and i'm not saying he sandbagged it but it was kind of maybe he got loose and had to crack the throttle but you would think on the last lap coming out of turn four in the daytona 500 you wouldn't let you wouldn't let off it just it, that looked a little funny too it let's say he might have just got a little bit squirrely and was afraid he'd take both of them out if he tried to make the pass or whatever but it, it, yeah, I say it seems half-hearted, but you never know about that. I mean, that's a good point, though, because if he thought that he was going to wreck, 
could you imagine Davey wrecking Bobby out of four and Phil Parsons win the Daytona 500 and then you would have another iconic Ken Squire moment and there's a fight and Davey (laughs) Allison is getting his ass whipped by his own father. Kel Yarborough has left the Enfield Medical Center and has joined the fray. Yeah, Cal Yarborough, he's ran out to the track to try to make this a two-on-one. He's just going to team up with whoever's winning. Exactly. Oh, that would be Yeah, Yeah, Kel's attacking Davey, too, for no apparent reason. Well, that would be. Uh, that that would have been that would have been something. Um, they don't have long because they got to go to the NBA game, but they did they did take a moment for a Bobby Allison interview. Five hundreds and a father son finish. Oh man, I'll tell you this: of all the brothers, Miller Buick really ran good. I'm telling you, Mike, what a thrill for me! What a thrill! I'll tell you, these guys have just been great for me. Uh, Jimmy Finnegan, and Keith Allman, and uh, I'm gonna tell you what. Uh, my parents are a, de- a real inspiration to me, and um, I'll tell you, it's just been a great day. Your sister watching at home, lying ill, your son right behind you and riding alongside on that victory lap. What could be better than this? I'll tell you, that was great, and Davey did such a great job, especially after getting the car wrecked so bad yesterday at the end of practice. Uh, I got to give a lot of credit to the whole Rainier crew, and uh, I'll tell you, Davey did a great job. And so did you. Congratulations, Bobby Allison. Back upstairs to Ken Squire. It's a big day for the seniors, the first winner over 50 years of age. Bobby Allison, the leader of the Alabama game. For Chris Economaki, Ned Jarrett, David Hobbs, Dave Despain, and Mike Joy, I'm Ken Squire saying so long from the Daytona International Speedway. They didn't have a long time to talk to Bobby, but uh, obviously happy. I mean, they had to get him before he ever even got out of the car. They must have told him, like, we, this, the only way you're getting an interview is staying right there, and you'll get your interview, and then you can celebrate after. Well, you can watch on the on the raw feed when uh, before the car even pulls into victory lane, Mike Joy's talking to somebody. He's like, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'll get right in there. Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. So, yeah, they had to be pushing them because of the race. And another thing, he's 50 years old. He looks like he's 77. I mean, and it ain't just him. It's this the, the whole generation of these drivers. When they hit their 40s, they look like they're 60. When they hit 50, they look like they're 90. It's, I don't know, Just it, it's to see that. And then nowadays you see people like Gordon and Johnson. And, you know, they're getting up there and they still look like they're in the 30s. It's it's a whole different thing. It's weird looking. It definitely is. Um, so they do, uh, there's a discussion. We've, I don't know what else we can really talk about as far as discussion on this Daytona 500. I thought this would be one that would be worth doing as part of the special series because of the petty wreck. And I knew it was Allison and Allison. And I also knew that it was the first race of restrictor plates. And I think, um, I think I liked the 83 race better, but this one was maybe more interesting. 
if that even makes sense. Yeah, the 83 race was a better race. This one had more of, a, I guess, a, a historical impact, you might say. Yeah, because it's not just a few months later, Bobby Allison has a near-fatal crash at Pocono, and that's the end of his career. I mean, just a few months after this, and he's done. So it was a really strange time for NASCAR. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the it's the first restricted plate race. Restricted plate race. It's the first time you see Earnhardt in the iconic black number three, you know, on the main stage. It's, it's so many firsts and so many lasts. It's a, it was a good race, but you know, not for the racing. No. And on that note, I will play one more clip. It's some quotes after the race from uh, the drivers. Today, the 1988 Daytona 500 is thought of as one of NASCAR's greatest moments with a father and son racing for the win. Initial reaction was more negative. Fans thought the cars were too slow and drivers thought the race lacked competition. Dale Earnhardt called it follow the leader and said the rule changes took all the racing out of it. Allison led the final 18 laps, and the finish was a single-file procession. Among others, Earnhardt said the event was much more dangerous, with cars hitting each other, still flipping into the catch vents. He called it a damn fiasco, and said somebody is going to get killed. The restrictor ate it all up. It, it made everybody the same speed, and that made it uh, probably more dangerous than, than when we were running 210. They took an approach that they thought would work, and as far as I'm concerned, it, it didn't work. Well, I really felt that a small engine with a small carburetor would be very much more in tune with uh, today's uh, automotive world. Despite the different opinions, restrictor plates were the best way of slowing cars down at the time at super speedways. Pack racing became more common, and the 1988 Daytona 500 set the stage for modern NASCAR. Uh, you can tell that the drivers... For the mo and I'm the only reason, the only one that was not against it was Bobby Allison, and he won the race. So why would he be? Yeah, he, well, I mean, and even him, he was a little bit hesitant because that's one of the things I've wondered for many years. Is uh, you have this big car and an eight-cylinder motor, okay, drop them down to a four-cylinder motor with smaller intake or something you know to give the driver the feel of more control rather than everybody just getting piled up in a big pack I, there's really not a good answer but I don't know the restrictor plate just kind of like they said it to me it made it more dangerous for the drivers now it was safer for the fans but more dangerous for the drivers yeah and when you when you compare this to races now you have, for the most part, like at Daytona and Talladega, they can be three wide, five or six rows deep for 10, 12 laps at a time. And somehow that's not as exciting as watching a race like this that we just did. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because the cars were more still out of control back then. I mean, now you can come up and slam draft side draft and they're almost um like a slot car 
So I don't know yeah. if that's that's part of it or what, but it's weird that you can have cars now that can be three by three by three by three by three, and it somehow not be as exciting as it was when they were single file and when they did get three wide, it was a big deal. Maybe that's what it is. Because like, when they got three wide then, every time in the race, I you can't see the announcers, but you can hear it in their voice. And Economaki orgasms at one point when this happens. The, the, you can hear the announcers stand up. You can, like you you know that they're like, oh. But now it's just so common that, you know, it's it's not, nothing in NASCAR surprises you anymore. It's just all standard because it's almost like we've seen everything. Until what? until we saw the watermelon crawl at Martinsville this past fall, that set a new bar. Finally, after 30 years, you saw something you've never seen before. Well, my my biggest problem with it now is well, like then, like you were talking about, they could adjust their spoiler, they could adjust the springs, they could anything other than the motor. They had, you know a pretty good leeway of what they could do with it. Now, the spoiler has to be a certain amount. The flares on the fenders have to be a certain amount. Uh, the springs have to be a certain The cars are too much identical. They're not made to the driver's specifications. You know, like back then, if the driver could hang on to it, drop the spoiler put him down. If he couldn't, he had to raise it up a little bit and just try and survive. There was more leeway with Stuff. Whereas now, like you said, it's like a slot car race. Yeah, and also, I guess back then, um, you know, now the cars are on those laser. I mean, they're laser scanned, and I don't know how many points of contact it has to hit, but basically, all the cars are like you said; they're all they're identical. And at least then, you still had some ingenuity. And one thing. I think for the most part, almost every restrictor plate race in the late 80s through probably at least the late 90s, the well, and even into the early 2000s when DEI's cars were really strong, the best cars usually still won. Now, you don't even really know sometimes in these races who has the best car because they're kind of all the same. Sometimes you'll have a guy that's, up front a little more than others, but it's almost like Russian roulette at the end of a race on who's going to win. It's whoever misses the wreck, whoever gets the push at the right time and is at the right place at the right time. It's very, very rare for a plate race now where you can watch it and say, whoever won, yeah, that guy had the best car for sure. There, there's yeah. races in the early, like early 90s, late 80s where there was one race, I think it was at Daytona, where Earnhardt won and Greg Sachs in the slim fast car finishes second. And it was not a very good race. And they basically ran away from the field. But you know what? They had the best two cars. And there was no doubt that that they were the best two cars in the race. Now you don't even know who's good. Yeah, see, they, they tried to make it more standardized and one of the excuses was that way the different teams wouldn't have to spend all this amount of money but like that back like back in the 80s 
you had teams that could spend a hundred thousand and maybe compete with somebody, whereas now they're having to spend twenty million to try and gain a tenth of a second. Whereas back then they spent a hundred thousand and if they had the right setup, they could gain three seconds. It's a whole nother field. Or they come up with some trick like the Morgan McClure cars did um, in the early 90s when Ernie Irvin just, just lights out good at the restricted play tracks. And, or like Harry Gant was in the, when he was Mr. October the one year and he tricked his car out and they, they were onto something. It it was cool to see ingenuity where a team or a driver could come out of nowhere and like really light it up. And then maybe not every week, but for certain tracks or certain configurations that you'd have a guy that just knew he was like Kyle Petty at Dover, uh, Kyle Petty or Rockingham. He was never the best NASCAR driver in the world. And he admits it, but there was something about him when he hit that certain track that he was like the guy to beat. You don't, you don't see that anymore. No, like I say, there's no, when you go to any, track right now there's not a favorite driver you know there there's not i mean before if you went to daytona especially during speed week or during fourth july earnhardt was the favorite driver that was the one you chasing the late on talladega same thing chasing earnhardt some of the short tracks like bristol and places you was chasing daryl you know, there were certain drivers that that's you knew that's where they were going to take you out at. But now, it, I don't know, it seems more cars than drivers. Yeah. So, Andy, we'll, we'll talk about it after uh, this show tonight. The next show will either be 1991 or 1994. And I still don't think that I've got a we still haven't come to a decision yet on that. It's pretty tough on which which one we want to fit in because there's there's good there's really really cool stories um, around both of them. But 1994 also has some bad stories like with the death of Neil Bonnet and Rodney Orr. So I may not want to get into may not want to get into that. Let's maybe want to keep it on the more positive side. I don't know. But the next show will be either 91 or 94. I will go ahead and step out on the ledge and say next week will be about Daytona. <laughs> yes, we will step out on the ledge and say the next show will definitely be about Daytona. So if um, you have any feedback for the show, let us know. Let us know on the Facebook page. Um, like, you know, comment. If you have any comments you want us to make on the show that's a follow-up to this show or this race, uh, then by all means, let us know, and we will put you on the air. So, Andy, is there anything else you want to talk about as far as 1988 Daytona 500? Um, no. I, I, the only thing I would say is I could understand if, if Tonamaki would have said that when he saw those two ladies in the bikinis, but at that portion of the race, I'm still confused. Tonamaki had a Bob Cottle-esque explosion on the air it, in 1988. Yes, and it was it, it was really glorious. And if you ever go back and listen to our Smoky Mountain 
podcast, you'll understand their efforts. All right, so I guess that's it for tonight. For Andy Waddell, this is Ricky Wittenberg, and this has been 1988 Speed Weeks, Racing Through Time.